It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Darren LaCroix, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Hey, delighted to be here. Thank you for having me, and I'm excited. Darren LaCroix, what are some other variations of LaCroix that you've had in your life? Uh, well, in France or in Canada, in Quebec, they say La Croix, which is technically the proper pronunciation. But for me, I grew up my whole life LaCroix, like C-R-O-Y, but it's C-R-O-I-X. So. Well, I was watching a, a wonderful testimonial from the extraordinary Brian Tracy, who called you La Croix. <laughs> and I, th- I think, he, is he Canadian originally, or at least uh, spent a lot of time there, maybe? He may be, but he's, you know, he's the ultimate student uh, and just comes from such a deep place of, uh, of knowledge. So anything he says, I am a huge fan. Uh, I've known him for a while. It took me years before I met him, but I felt like I knew him because he was in my car. I was listening to him over and over and over again. If So he knows I am like, when I first met him, I got to tell you this super quick. When I first met him, my journey was about becoming funnier and becoming a comedian. And when I first met him, it was at an NSA convention, the National Speakers Association. And I had done this. It was my first quote unquote, uh, big session at NSA. It was a fundraiser. And I did this little 10 minute comedy bit. And I didn't know it, but I ran into him the next morning and I said, Oh, Brian Tracy, you're the guy you helped me like become who I am today. And, you know, I told him the whole story. And he said, were you on stage last night? And I said, yes. He goes, I called my wife and told her that was one of the funniest routines I ever heard. And I just like, waterwork. <laughs> I started falling. And I'm like, oh, you laughed at me. It was, it was a huge coming of age thing for me. And I just, you know, when you meet your hero, you put him on a pedestal. And then to have him laugh, oh, my gosh, that was ridiculous. So that was an awesome moment in my life. Well, I, I, I'm a, this is just gives me shivers down my spine, Darren, because for anyone that doesn't know Brian Tracy, it is a must if you are into self-help or I think you should read that ahead of Lord of the Rings or uh, any John Grisham novel any day of the week. You get way more out of it, but he's had a massive influence mm-hmm. in my life. I haven't had a chance to meet the man. I understand he might not be faring too well with his health in the last couple of years which happens, I suppose, when you start getting a bit old. But I, I wonder if he ever got sick or ever gets sick of hearing those that wonderful feedback like you gave him about changing his life, or you're changing I your life. Doubt it. He, yeah, I, I love it. I love it when people come to me and say that something I said impacted them. So it doesn't get old to me. But, hey, who knows? I'm, I'm a different person than he is, but I, I bet he – 
appreciates it at many levels because he's, you know, he's helped so many of us. Like, so I always say one of my philosophies to being your own superhero is be a sponge. <laughs> For those listening, it's an actual sponge <laughs> with beer sponge uh, put on there. That's brilliant. Mm. Uh, the The reason why we're able to bring you on the show today, Darren, was through the wonderful Patricia Fripp, uh, the Hall of Fame speaker, who's just made introductions to so many wonderful, wonderful people. And, and back in the day, in 2001, I believe it might have been, you beat out 25,000 other contestants at Toastmasters across 14 countries to become the world's number one speaker. <laughs> yes, that was uh, another exciting moment for me. And it was life-changing, not just for the winning of the contest, but for the internal for my own personal identity, because I had never won anything in my life. And if you're going to become your own superhero, we have to take inventory of our identity, those those little beliefs in our head, who we think we are. And I, it took me two or three months before I fully absorbed what I had done, because that was not the life I lived up with, my grew up with. My sister, she was the brain. She was super smart, summa cum laude in college. My brother was a superstar athlete. And I was just the nice guy. You know, we talked about this before the show. I, I just, okay, you're the nice guy. That's your position. And that was my identity. So that moment was, uh, was huge for me. And I was, for anyone who doesn't know, it's a six month contest by Toastmasters International. And honestly, I didn't even join the contest to win. When I originally joined the contest, it's because I ignored one of my mentors for two years. He saw me being a wannabe speaker and trying to find that story, trying to find that story, trying to find that story. And he said, Darren, stop trying to find that story that will launch your career. And instead, take the stories you already have and make them so good, someone will pay to hear them. And that was a game changer for me. I, I, like it took my head and I felt like one of those cartoons. I, 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 uh, all of a sudden it was like a new perspective. So I actually joined the contest because I was a telemarketer. That was my quote unquote day job at the time. I was marketing myself every waking moment and I was speaking anywhere and everywhere I could. The one thing I wasn't doing was working on my craft. So when I saw the speech contest came around, I said, you know what? I need to go back to that advice from my mentor who had passed at the time and and be serious about it. So I joined the contest to improve one of the stories I already had in my keynote. So think about it. Like this is a bit of brilliance from Craig Valentine, one of my friends and fellow world champion. He says, if you want to master peace, you have to master the pieces. If you want to master peace, you have to master the pieces. And sometimes it's hard to work on a 45 minute keynote all at once. So he was saying, take a piece out. So I did. I took one of my famous stories out. I worked on it, worked on it, worked on it with my whole goal to put it back in the keynote, raising the value of the whole keynote because the piece was better. And so when I would win, I won a level, I, would, I did it again. I had an opportunity to work on it more. I won again. I had an opportunity to work on it more. So the story improved. And if I can just tell you this really quick uh, story, I think is crucial. So I did it to improve my speech so I could get paid. The bonus, the side effect was the trophy. You know, that was uh, the win was getting better because this is what I wanted to do for a living. And uh, a few years later, I went to Taiwan. Well, just a couple years 
uh, previous to right now, today when we're recording this, I was back in Taiwan. So it was about six years difference. And my second trip to Taiwan, the, there was a woman, Therese, who was my event planner. She was the head Toastmaster of the whole country. And she and I were on a high-speed train going from one city to another. And she told me, she said, Darren, six years ago, I was not a Toastmaster. I didn't even know what it was. And last time you were here, I was in the audience. You did a workshop for our company outside of Toastmasters. And I remember you telling the story of your first time on stage and how nervous you were. And she actually took her hand and shook it like I do when I tell the story. And that made me realize that that story inspired her to join Toastmasters and then in the leadership and all the way to the top. But what mattered to me was I realized the importance of that wisdom from my mentor, because that was the story I joined the speech contest for in order to improve. And so we've got to make those stories so good. Anyone can tell a story, but is it so good? It's unforgettable. And that was just proof to me that it it was, and I followed the advice and it had the impact I was looking for. Well, this is why I love sharing this message, Darren. And, and I mean, first things first, congratulations on such a massive achievement. I'm really one question that I had for my own selfish uh, being was how many times had you practiced that speech before you delivered it for that award-winning event? Well, there was three, I had to have three different speeches at the top three levels. So there's six levels. So the first one, the story of my first time on stage, I used for one, two, three, and four. I took another story out for level five, but then when it was level six, the world championship, where there's nine finalists out of 35,000 people who compete, I had to create a new speech from scratch. So the world championship speech, I had done 22 times live before the finals, before it was on the big stage. And that was in a span of about 77 days that I had to create it, perfect it, get coached on it, and then deliver it. What do you think is the sweet spot in terms of the number of rehearsals that you can to really just absolutely nail any speech? <laughs> uh, I would hate to cop out, but that depends because you bring your own mindset to your own rehearsal. So you can mail it in and do it a million times and it may get slightly better over time, but you can have that sponge mindset. Like I, I'm not worried about how it goes today. I'm worried about how it goes 10 times from now to serve that audience. And then even when you're done. So after I won the world championship, I was invited uh, the next year to give the same speech at my NSA convention because they were trying to bridge the gap between National Speakers Association. I think they call it PSA in Australia. Yeah. The National Speakers Association. So the American version is NSA. So I was giving it and they wanted to bridge the gap between the two organizations. So they invited me to give the same speech. Well, even though I won the world championship of public speaking, I took it and I gave it to some of my speaking buddies. And I said, how do I make this better? How do I make this better? So you're never done. It's just as good as I can get for that next audience. And then even when I'm doing my two-day events, so I have two-day events, I'm literally taking notes on how I can make this better next time for every one of our two-day events, So, uh, which is horrible for the people who are on that event. But because I did it 32 other times previously, it's gotten as good as it is for now. So I don't think we're ever truly done. And people that are listening to this, thinking, you know what, I'd love to improve my speech. I'd love to be able to tell stories better. This is what you do now. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
this is what I do, what I love to do. I coach other presenters from emerging speakers to high level executives. I've been brought to Ukraine to work with uh, the executives of a company called Luxoft over there, European financial company. And so this is what I do. And now with all this craziness and COVID, you know, I'm doing it from home, which is awesome. Just, okay, let's do it in this format. And then when we can be live again, I'll come back to a hybrid format. But yeah, this is my passion is to help other people reach their audience, connect more deeply. At the beginning of my career, I was animated, but I was, it was like watching bad karaoke. I was animated, but it was horrible and nobody knew what I was really trying to say, but I was animated. So I, you know, when I worked with my coach, Mark Brown, uh, Mark just showed me a whole different way of looking at speaking. And just a, a quick example, I brought him the first version of that championship speech, ouch. And I drove two and a half hours from Boston to New York, where he had worked. And we were a little corporate theater. And if you don't know Mark Brown, he stands about six foot two. Uh, I'm five eight. He stands six foot two. He's got a heart of gold. He's a native of Jamaica. And he's got this beautiful, booming laugh like the guy from the old 7-Up commercial. Ah, ha, ha, ha. And I was so excited. Like, I wrote the greatest speech in the history of Toastmasters. And I didn't want to send it to him ahead of time because I wanted to see the joy on his face when he read version 1.0, thinking he could just give me a couple of tweaks and then I would be good. And I handed it to him. I swear it was so good. It was like hearing choirs of angels as I handed it to Mark. Mark took the speech and he looked at it. Oh, Darren, we have some work to do. What? I did everything you told me to do. I wrote the greatest speech that I could write from the level I was at. But you see, you don't know what you don't know. So at the beginning of my career, I was a sponge, but I think one of the two biggest problems in the presenting speaking world is number one, at the beginning, self-doubt that we don't, we don't believe we have the stories. We, we envy other people's stories, but we don't see our own value. It's there. You just have to learn to mine your life. And the second biggest problem is ego. And that's what, that was the problem I had in 2001. I thought I was better than I was. So Mark humbled me. I went back to being a sponge and then I started growing again. So I think if you're going to be your own superhero, never look, let go of that sponge mindset. Don't ever think you've arrived because you haven't. And there's somebody half as good as you working twice as hard as you. And we, you know, we, it's just so critical. So one quick point, when he looked at my story, he could see there was one of my stories that I told that I went home to tell my parents I wanted to be a comedian. And when I first told it, it was in narration, which meant I was telling about it. It was past tense. And Mark said, oh, Darren, we need to bring the audience to hear the conversation. And I, that didn't make sense to me. And then, so originally it was, so I went home to tell my parents I want to be a comedian but I was speechless or they were speechless. They didn't know what to say. And then after Mark's coaching, it turned into, so I went home, mom, dad, I want to be a comedian. And I was met by silence. Ouch. So one is telling us about the moment. Number two is you witness the conversation. I think if presenters could do just one thing, it would be to tell your stories in dialogue. 
That was a game changer for me. And that's what Dave Fitzgerald, my other mentor, was talking about when he said, make them so good, someone will pay to hear them. And that was a technique I hadn't learned after being a speaker, quote unquote, for seven years. So I really think we need to be a sponge, but not just a sponge, a sponge to world-class teachers. You know, like Brian Tracy, we were talking about Brian Tracy earlier. I was just in my car. I didn't even listen to music anymore, which was crazy because I had always listened to music. I love music. Not anymore. Well, I had a, uh, a, a humbling life experience in May of last year when I was able to invite Les Brown to come on the podcast, Darren, and and that was my Brian Tracy moment for for lack of a better um, opportunity. And uh, it was an incredibly – it was a life-altering moment. It, it, it's a lot like he just – he's writing the forward for my book. Like he's – we've had further conversations and we're doing some other projects together as well. And it's just like – I can totally empathize with how you were feeling at that time where you're like, this is the guy, you know, like, and, uh, and I suppose my question is, how did you know that you'd finally made it as a speaker? Hmm. I think the moment for me was when I was working on my championship speech, one of the practices, and I, by the way, I never look at it at practice anymore. After this moment, I thought it's a practice, you know, and it's in front of quote unquote Toastmasters. So it's a practice for the big stage, but I had that practice mindset, but something changed. So I was at MIT, uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Boston, and they had a Toastmasters club and there was a small group, maybe 15, 20 people. And there was one woman unbeknownst to me, wasn't even a Toastmaster, but she was a foreign exchange student. So I give my speech with all the heart that I can. And she walks up to me later and she was uh, had an Asian background. She spoke with a thick, broken accent and she came up to me and she said, I am failing out of MIT. My family says I should quit and go home. I heard your speech. I stay. Bam! That's why we do what we do. And that's when I realized it's not a speech. It's not about how good my speech is. It's what the audience hears. It's how they process it. So one of the things that I teach, you probably heard me say this before, but I ask people, what is the most important part of a presentation? And I hear the opening, the closing, the audience, the message. I said, no. What, what do you mean? No, no. The most important part of a presentation is the thought process in the listener's mind. It's not your opening. It's how your opening affects our thoughts. It's not your closing. It's how your closing affects our thoughts. It's their hearing and something happens between my mouth and their ears. <laughs> uh, 99% of what we coach people on is clarity, clarity, clarity. I just did a two-day event with Mark Brown called Get Coach to Speak, and we had some uh, executives there, and they told their stories. And when we were done with them, it was like night and day difference in 24 hours. And just to have that impact, which isn't easy, but that's when you know you're the real deal. When people are coming up to you, not saying you're great. That's a pat on the head. Uh, that's nice. But when they say, here's what I will do differently because I heard you. So, you know, getting a paycheck is a good coming of age moment. Absolutely. However, when people come up to you and, and if they say that was great, I always stop people because that's ego. I stop people and I say, what was most helpful to you? 
Because again, we got to be a sponge and how did it come across? Yeah, I think people underestimate, certainly in my own experience, the power of being a really strong communicator. And since I've spent really two years uh, balls deep, for lack of a better word, I suppose, trying to become as good as this as I can, it's impacted all these other areas of my life that I didn't even realize. Conversations with people at the supermarket, uh, over the phone, getting a bill sorted, asking for a delay, you know, to pay a bill and being able to to weave a story in there, which is mm. something that I, I, I love to practice anyway, because any opportunity to speak to anyone, particularly since we've been in lockdown, you know, particularly the face-to-face ones, I like to try and make use of that time. Um, yeah, I want to throw one idea in there based on what you just said for your podcast and for your listeners. Please, yeah. My just, I want to switch one word. I, I, you get it. I have no doubt you get it. But for the listeners, I want to make sure they're clear. My pastor said something to me once. He said, are you trying or are you training? And I said, what? Are you trying or are you training? And I was really puzzled. I said, what, what do you mean? And he said, look, trying, anyone can try. Everyone tries. And I use the analogy that if you asked me to run a marathon today and you offered me a million dollars, I could try, but I ain't going to make it. Let's be honest. I ain't going to make it. I'll, I'll, I'll try. But if you invited me to have that million dollars six months from now, I can train to do that. And there's a difference. He says, training is doing what you can do today. So that tomorrow you can do what you can't do today. I'll say it again. Training is doing what you can do today so that tomorrow you can do what you can't do today. There's a difference. There's a difference in mindset. You know, people can show up and want some tips and let's see what I can pick up. Or you can say, just like you have that awesome attitude, like I'm all in, I'm balls in to use your reference. And that's, that's training. That's not trying. So you're doing it. I just want to, uh, for our listeners, make sure they, they get the difference because I have a lot of perpetual students who come to us, who go through our two day events, who are part of my stage time university and they're perpetual students. It's like, unless you're actually out there applying it, you're not actually training. You've got to take the idea and go give it. Find it, get feedback, hear how it comes across to the listeners, because I can give you the exact words. There's actually an Australian world champion. I love him. His name is Jock Elliott, and he's a coach. And he says, my words won't fit in your mouth. So even though we might get coaching, we still got to own whatever we're saying. So anyway, I just wanted to clarify trying versus training. You, my friend, are a sponge, and that's why I'm happy to be here for you. Well, it's a really valid point and, and it sort of leads me to my next area of interest. I saw you giving some feedback on one of the YouTube videos from a while back uh, on an Australian gentleman who had moved to America. He lived in California, I think. And the you were talking about, um, actually, my fiance watched it with me and it was about the how authentic he was being uh, getting teary, like getting emotional. Mm. And she was like, is that real? And I was mm. just curious to, to know 
like one of one of my superpowers, Darren, is I've I've become super co- comfortable with sharing my vulnerabilities, and I own all of my demons, right? And I love it. It's a part of this healing process. Powerful. Um, but and it, and it creates really deep connections with people really quickly because it's it's the truth and authentic. How important is that when you are telling a story? Oh, it's critical. Uh, and some people aren't ready to tell the story, so we always suggest don't use the stage for therapy. If you're if you're not there yet, if you're not healed, once you're healed, you know, tell us everything, but don't use the stage for your therapy. Find a therapist. Find a professional. So I think authenticity is everything. Mark Brown, my the gentleman who coached me, uh, 95 world champion of public speaking, he says authenticity plus vulnerability equals credibility. And so what your fiance saw, if you even question it, chances are it's not good. We have to, we should feel it. And we need to connect with ourselves and our own stories. There's a great speaker coach. His name is Lou Heckler. He says, take us. Don't tell us. And if you're acting, if you're trying to manufacture it, it just doesn't work. Like you've got to go there and maybe it's felt too painful. Okay. Maybe it's too soon to tell that story. But if you're just acting or trying, we've got to, we have to connect with ourselves before we connect with the audience and they can sense the difference. We've got to be that person that's open, but not trying to act. There's a difference between acting and reliving. And it's a difference between connection and whatever is the issue with with not having dealt with all of your trauma or your demons the fact that you get emotional and it detracts from being able to deliver the message effectively well it's it and this is just my opinion but it can be used as manipulation for the wrong reason to try you know this person died in my life okay well are you just trying to manipulate us to create a connection or is there a valid point that you're trying to get across so I just think that, hey, every speaker is different. Every presenter is different. This is my belief and what I see as a coaching people for two decades. But if you're just, you know, there are some really good speakers that are really good actors. But there are a lot of people who are trying to act that you can tell. Yeah. So if you're a good actor, then use that. Use that as your skill. Awesome. But we shouldn't be trying to act. That is not good. You're either good at it or you're not. But that's why I just find that being openness and vulnerable is just so connecting for anyone if you're willing to. And some people aren't willing to, and that's okay. Uh, It's a choice, though. You are the CEO of your own presentation. You make the decision. But uh, Craig Valentine says, you've got to go back to your reliving room. When I tell that story my first time on stage, where uh, I went up and how I was and what I felt, I go back there in my mind. So it's going to come across differently each time. The story is the same, but my connection is pure to that day and that moment and that audience and how I'm feeling. And I think that's the difference. It shouldn't be mechanical. You know, if you're being mechanical, it's the audiences are so savvy these days, they can tell. Do you ever get your food from Subway anymore, Darren? Absolutely. (laughs) Good stuff. I just had to take a break for a year and a half after I I lost my business because I was, uh, I was subwayed out because it was struggling. And by the way, I don't blame Subway. It was on me. I made a lot of mistakes. So I do not blame Subway for my business failures. About a year and a half, I had the business. I sold it at a loss 
So according to their books, it was a successful sale, but I still had to carry a, a $20,000 uh, note that I had. So I was able to pay off some of it, but I still had a huge note. So, uh, but I will never eat tuna again because when you're making tuna 12 hours a day, and I just, oh, the, the smell bothers me to begin with. But when you're making vats of it with your hand in mayo, yeah, I'm, don't even show me a tuna sandwich. In Australia recently, I'm not sure whether it was the same in the US, they just uh, they had to redefine the term for the Subway bread because it wasn't allowed to be called bread because it was more sugar than it was bread, oh, wow. um, which is quite, was quite humorous because I think it all gets shipped in from the US anyway. Uh, all the breads, all like the the kernels, uh, eleven herbs and spices, whatever it might be. But in terms of your where you started, because you weren't ever a speaker, you were you're a, a failed comedian. I was a well, I wouldn't say I was a failed comedian. I would say I was not funny. I was a quiet, shy kid, so no one ever said you should be a comedian. Now, obviously, anybody who's starting anything is not good. So I started out horrible. Um, but I made it to a level where I was a middle act. I never made it as a headliner. So technically people might say I failed, but I just changed lanes. I just realized this speaking thing was so much more in line with who I was, with my business background, with my corporate experience. So I, I kind of changed lanes, but it was a struggle. Uh, but one of my favorite sayings is if you take away my struggle, you take away my growth. And that comedy time was such a strong foundation for me as a speaker now. So I'm super thankful. And I don't know where I got the, the energy and the guts and the, the bravery to go up on stage when I had zero talent, no confidence, no act. Yeah. Ouch. Well, the, uh, you and I share a lot, of, a lot in common, uh, more so than you probably realized, because I've had a crack at doing uh, stand-up comedy with the Raw Comedy Festival over here a couple of times. But what's happened, Darren, my interest in getting up on stage for comedic reasons has totally dissipated because when I was up on stage, it was when I was still healing and dealing with a lot of my validation and my uh, self-deprecating humour and my negative self-talk, which I don't use anymore. And when I say to you, failed, I don't mean it as in a negative context. It's like... It's like for for theatrical reasons only because it's like your superpower. So I'm just curious to know, is that something similar that you've experienced as well? Yeah, it, well, similar in terms of the switch. So I can't say that I was really um, using the stage as a comedian for therapy. Uh, I was using it because I, I just I was addicted to laughter because I wasn't funny. So any little hint of a laugh, I was like, yes. And when I found Toastmasters, I realized comedy clubs are only open at night. Toastmasters is during the day. I could fail twice a day. Woohoo! So I used that mindset. You know, my mentors taught me stage time, stage time, stage time. But for me, and I think for you as well, I went from craving those ha-has to realizing deep down I thrived and I I was a sponge to want ahas. So I went from ha-has to ahas. But now the ha-ha training gave me a way to deliver my content and have some humor in it to make it my medium rather than my message. 
So I was driven by that, you know, that girl from MIT is the perfect example. That young lady who made me realize this is what I'm supposed to do. From Haha's to Aha sounds like the title of your third book, Darren. <laughs> uh, it might be the fourth one. I'm working on a couple right now. Well, you've written two, and I, um, I, I couldn't get them because they're only available in hard copy over here and like estimated arrival was like May. <laughs> so um, what was the experience of writing books like for you? Well, the first one was the biggest because when I was in my local chapter of NSA, the National Speakers Association in Boston, I'm in Vegas now, but I was in Boston at the time. Everyone said, you got to write a book. You got to write a book. You got to write a book. If you want to be a speaker, author, trainer, you have to have some credibility. So you got to write a book. And I'm like, write a book. I'm dyslexic. I don't even like to read a book. And so that thought was so far from my head. I'm like, yeah, I guess I can't do it. And then one of my friends and mentors from my NSA chapter, his name is Rick Siegel. He was working on a book with somebody about humor and business. And he invited me to write with him because they had creative differences. He knew my background in standup and my passion for business. And I said, you know what? I'm not a writer, but if I'm ever going to write a book, the two things that I love are humor and business. And so I said, I'm a better, I will be a better co-author than I would author. Uh, at the beginning, I needed that person to keep me accountable. Now I can keep myself accountable. I'm not saying I'm I don't have accountability friends at times, but I know when I need them and I know when I don't. And then I needed one. So we got together and we interviewed CEOs and entrepreneurs who used humor as part of their business. And we we were on a mission, but we were just as long as we made progress. Our goal was to get it half done, half done, because I figure if I get it half done, I am, I'm a finisher. So there's so much Catholic guilt in me. I was like, I will get it finished. <laughs> The funny part is, or the ironic part is when we, back in the day, this was in the nineties, you couldn't do uh, create on demand books. Like that was not a thing back then. So you had to literally order 2,500 of them. And at the time I was still struggling living at home with my mom and dad, trying to quote unquote, be a speaker. And I'll always remember when the pallet trucks backed up to my mother's garage, we had to pull out the minivan to get the pallets of books inside. And then I had the Catholic guilt to sell them because so my mom could put her car back in the garage. So it was a, it was a good double motivator. But when I got the first one in my hands, I, I, again, another transformational moment in my life on my own self-identity, who I was. And people would look at me differently. You're an author? Why, yes, I am. <laughs> I did the time. I struggled. I got the editor. I got the people, you know, I did the, wrote the chapters. So it was a big moment in my life. It's a good book. I won't say it's an amazing book, but uh, I'm always proud of that baby. And then I teamed up on my second one with a bunch of world champions and Patricia Fripp. So it's called the speaker's edge. Yeah. I don't know if you can find too many of them, but I'm working on another one actually with Patricia now called Unforgettable Presentations, the title of my podcast. So Patricia was is such an integral part. I'm like, I can't do it without you, Patricia. So we're actually meeting literally this week to get started on that project. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, from my own experience, because I, I never finished high school down, I never went to university. And and when I had this, this come to God moment, uh, as Liz called it, 
uh, he inspired he inspired the book and he used the the language that I gave him from the the attributes that I got from my mother and I wrote the book in six weeks and it was it's thirty thousand words it's not super duper long it still needs some refining I'm really uh, going to do what I can to get it uh, published this year. Uh, there's a lot more work in, in uh, than just the writing of it, as you would very well know. But the actual process of writing the book was so incredibly cathartic. And uh, and I hope that when people read it, they get as much joy as I get from reading it. And, uh, <laughs> and maybe, maybe that's a good sign of a good book. I don't know. I, I was um, privileged to have uh, John Gray, the author of Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, uh, come on the podcast uh, last year in 2020, and and uh, I gave him an idea for his next book, which is going to be called Fifty Shades of John Gray. So if you see that book, <laughs> that's my idea, right? <laughs> Funny, you know, I I, for, I set up a quote of mine, and then I don't think you even said it, but like working on the book was for me. If you take away my struggle, you take away my growth. And so working on the speech, working in the book, and I think a lot of people don't realize that struggle is part of your transformation and then it becomes part of your credibility. You know, people looked at me different after I won the world championship. Well, I worked my tail off. I, you know, even in the stand-up days, I would drive two and a half hours to Portland, Maine from Boston to go on stage for five minutes for free and drive home and go to my day job the next morning. And my friends, my high school buddies told me I was stupid. Now I get to fly all over the world and do what I love to do for a living. Now some of my same high school buddies call me lucky. Apparently you can go from stupid to lucky. <laughs> Anyone ever calls you stupid, keep going. You're on the right path. Well, thankfully no one's got the gumption to call me stupid to my face at least these days. Um, although I've been reliably informed that if I'm not getting enough negative feedback, I'm not doing my job properly. Um, mm. How have you dealt with copying the negative feedback in your life? Mm. Uh, have great mentors to run it by. You know, one of my quote unquote self-development challenges growing up was I took everything personally. And I think that was a big aha to just finally let go of that. It still stings a little bit, but now I say, okay, but how will this feedback serve my next audience? So if you realize it's just, um, do you know who's um, uh, lead singer of Aerosmith? Steve? Steve Tyler. Yeah, yeah. Tyler. So Steve Tyler was a judge on American Idol several years ago and he has sat down with Oprah and they interviewed him and they said, what's it like, you know, sending people home? And he said something brilliant. He said, when I send them home, most of these people who are coming to the show and make it to the show, they're way more talented than I was when I started. So when I send them home, I'm not saying you'll never be the American idol. He said, I'm saying you're not the American idol today. And all that means is go home go back in the clubs and learn a few more lessons. And I just think that's brilliant because it's not over. It's just a moment in time. So when people are giving me feedback, I kind of use that mindset that, hey, that day, that time, here's what they thought. And then I've got to weigh it. Is that actually making that change or making adjustment or reevaluating? Is that going to help serve my next audience? Because it was just me one moment in time. It doesn't define who I am. It actually says this day, that moment, that audience. Okay. 
And sometimes we get that random feedback, that one percenter. We can't listen to the one percenter. You're always going to have them. You never know what happened. They could have had their spouse cheat on them that day. They could have had their kids find out they had cancer and they're taking it out on you because you're there. So we've got to be careful. And that's why if I get that critical feedback, uh, we want to run it by a mentor, somebody who cares about us and is willing to tell us the truth because sometimes those one percenters are right, but generally they're not. I'm looking for commonality. If everyone says something wasn't clear, guess what? It wasn't clear. <laughs> We've got to be careful for, uh, for well-meaning people. In my championship speech, I fell on my face and I gave part of my speech from literally lying down on the stage. You, if you're listening to this podcast, you can just put in Darren LaCroix winning speech in YouTube and you can see it. But I intentionally fell down. Well, when I was going to my 22 clubs to get feedback in preparation for the big dance, everyone said... I was uncomfortable. You were down too long. You should get up sooner. I was uncomfortable. You were down too long. You should get up sooner. So in one quick statement, I realized one of our challenges is wading through the feedback. How do we know what to listen to? So I went to my coach and I said, here's what they're saying. I was uncomfortable. Uh, you were down too long. You should get up sooner. And he said, Darren, our job is not to make the audience comfortable. It's to make them uncomfortable so they will change. Stay down longer. And so if we look at it, so I try, now what I teach presenters to do is wade through that. There's two kinds of feedback. So you got to weigh each statement. So number one, here's what I thought and felt. When you said this, here's what I thought and felt. Everyone is qualified to tell you that. That's what they thought and felt. That's real. Number two. Here's how to make it better. Coaching. Not everyone. In fact, most people are not qualified to tell you that feedback. Okay. Now receive it, but then throw that away or run it by a qualified coach. We need a qualified coach. So if we break it down, I was uncomfortable, thought and felt valid. Uh, you stayed down too long, thought and felt valid. You should get up sooner. And eh, that's coaching. I went to my coach. Now, I needed those first two bit of feedback because I turned it into making a point because at the beginning, I they were uncomfortable, but we've got to make people feel or they're not engaged. So when I did the fall, I stood up and I asked the audience, did you feel I stayed down too long? And people like, how did you know what I was thinking? Because I went to 22 clubs and you told me, <laughs> but I used it to make a point. Had I listened to the coaching of those well-meaning, more experienced than I was Toastmasters, it would have lessened my audience impact. So yes, we do coaching. We do coaching at our events, but it doesn't have to be us, but the person has to know what they're talking about. There's uh, in Sydney, there's uh, one of our coaches is her name is Jennifer Leone. She is amazing coach. I sat at her kitchen table once and she asked me a few questions. She's a ninja at going into your life and pulling out the core of why you do what you do. She's so good at that. Jennifer Leone, she's awesome. A great friend. And we've been having her on our coaching staff for years. You've echoed what I heard from uh, a gentleman, Greg Reed, who's the co-author with uh, Sharon Lecter of uh, The Think and Grow Rich, Three Feet from Gold. Uh, Napoleon Hill Foundation approved book series, a book that I don't know if you've had a chance to read that one. But he talks about seeking counsel, not opinion. 
uh, which is <laughs> exactly what, yeah. And um, it's funny, you know, Darren. I, I've received not a lot, but a couple of messages from former friends. I'll call them directly attacking me for living this life. Mm. And what I've come to understand is that that's them telegraphing their own shit and insecurity onto me mm-hmm. and, and maybe wanting the life that I have. What are your thoughts on that? Did did Patricia's episode air before this one, Will? It will have, yeah. Okay. All right. She's done. She won't hear this, but that's their stuff. You know, she says, don't say the word stuff, but that's their stuff. And that's okay. And we just, you know, we've got to ask ourselves, run it by your mentor, people who care and love you and see, is this valid? But, you know, people don't want to see other people successful because then that means they got to work harder. So I just think it's, it's just part of growth, self-growth and how to process that for you. Now, they, there, there might be a little bit of truth. And I think that's what we have to look for. We can't just throw it all away. Okay. It might be wrapped in their rage and their insecurities, but deep down inside, is there a little bit of truth that could help us get better? And I think that's sometimes people dismiss it too much when eh, maybe they were right about one little point. Yeah, absolutely some truth to some of the comments, but the way in which it was delivered was not helpful to anyone. (laughs) And and guess what, Darren, that person doesn't get to be in my life anymore. And that's the, the, the wonder of boundary setting and becoming very clear. And I've become super duper ruthless is the only way to describe it of excommunicating people that do not serve me well. And and I talk about this a lot in this podcast. And the benefit is that you allow the space to bring better quality people into your life. And that is exactly what's happening. People like you, Darren, because I am now, and you've spoken about this, becoming the people that you spend the most time around. I'm spending my time with world-class speakers, Hall Mm. of Fame speakers, you know, Olympic athletes, Nobel Prize winners we've had, you know, John Gray, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, Kevin Sorbo, Hercules came on, you know, last week. And, you know, like they've all got the same thing in common that you touched on. They all work their tail off to get where they are and they created their own luck. And as soon as you understand that it's all within your grasp, it's a really, really powerful anecdote for life, I believe. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I just, I think there's so much... I think of when you said that, I thought instantly of a Jim Rohn quote. I don't know if you're a Jim Rohn fan. I'm a phenomenal Jim Rohn fan, but he said, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And so we've got to look and take inventory of who is in our top five. That quote got me to take my friends, my high school buddies who I'm still friends with and I love. I just moved them out of my top five. So they get less brain space. I still love them. They're not out of my life. But the, when I'm careful what I share with them, so I don't share those ridiculous, crazy dreams. So like right now, I'm working on a film script. So I've been working for seven years and I'm on version nine. And that's my big, you know, my next big thing. And I think if we're inspirational, motivational speakers, we should have that another big, crazy, ridiculous dream. Otherwise, why should people really follow us? We might have accomplished something. But what are you working on now that's stretching you, that's struggling? 
So I started a 77 day video challenge and I'm just telling people, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm learning. Hey, I got rejected. Uh, okay. Moving forward. So I think we, we need to live what we're talking about. There's a, another, there's a series from my church that I kind of adopted as my own personal philosophy. And it says to, um, live a life worth watching and inspire by example, not just what I say, but watch what I'm doing. Two questions. First question, what's the script about? Uh, it's my journey. Um, and I actually am working on the sequel already, but it's called Least Likely. And it's, uh, it's the struggle that I had. It's basically the story that I have. But I lived uh, on the movie Rudy. Uh, if you saw the movie fo- football, our, our football, not other people's football, but Rudy, Soul Surfer, uh, is that the Kevin you were talking about, Kevin Sorbo? Uh, it w- so, yeah, but Greg Reed uh, interviewed on that book, The Three Feet from Gold, Rudy, the actor, oh, the, cool. the guy yeah. whose life the, the movie was based on. Yeah, he, he has been right here in my office. Rudy Rudiger. Rudy Rudiger? Rudy Rudiger, yep. Sorry, he, yeah. He was a personal, like meeting him was like when I met Brian Tracy because his movie came out in 1993. My stand-up started in 1992. That movie kept me going. And ever since I've been young, uh, I've always loved any true life story that comes out. I go and watch it. Blindside, Soul Surfer. In fact, right here on my desk, I'm looking at Mike, uh, Michael Orr. I beat the odds. He's the guy in Blindside. Jim Morris from the movie The Rookie, the old, oldest rookie in baseball, Soul Surfer. Um, anyway, so... That is what the next book is after the Frip book, and that's what the the movie's about. So, it's been, uh, it's been I've actually got a third question, Darren. Second question: Who's going to play you in the movie? <laughs> is it too is it too late to have Bruce Willis? Uh, yeah, he doesn't look twenty three. So <laughs> the the crux of the story happened in uh, in twenty when I was twenty three. So he could. I, a lot of people say I look like him, but I don't. I don't know. I don't. That's once I sell the script, that's going to be on them. So, but I did, I would tell you, I, it's kind of funny. I asked Mark Brown who would play him because he was one of the critical mentors of my life. He didn't even hesitate. And he says, Denzel, like, <laughs> uh, who yeah. else would play me? He like, <laughs> the, it killed me because he didn't even hesitate. And related to that on your theme, become your own superhero, which I love. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to ask you a tough question. I, I have my answer and it's just my perspective. So it doesn't mean you're wrong, but I think this might be helpful to your listeners. So who is more important, the student or the mentor? Or the student or the teacher, either way you want to phrase it. Who do you think is more well, the important? the teacher, the teacher, in my opinion. Okay. So here's what I'm going to say. I think it's the student because if it's just the mentor, if you're connected to the wrong mentor, you're done. The student, I believe you as the student, me as a student, people in our audience as the student, if you're not getting, if you follow somebody's advice and you don't get that progress that you need, uh, then it 
it's not working. So we can have the ability to find another teacher. Rudy, even his, his when he talks about the making of his movie, he said he had many mentors, but in the movie, they had to put it in, in one uh, person's persona. But anyway, for you or I, I think the teacher is important, but the student is more important. So we can find, we can choose who that teacher is. So when I looked at my story in writing the movie script, at the beginning, I needed somebody to take me under their wing in the stand-up comedy world, and his name was Vinny. So he was my mentor at the beginning. And then uh, there was a huge challenge. He fell out of my life, uh, completely blocked me, couldn't talk, and I just didn't think I could do it without him. Okay, I put him on too high of a pedestal. And then my mentor, David Gerald, who he's the one who said the stories make the story so good. So then he became like the next section of the movie of my life. And he became the mentor. And then he passed away in 1998, 99. And then Mark Brown, the world champion, became my new mentor. So at the time, I was devastated when Vinny was out of my life, when Dave passed away. And I had to find that mentor, but I realized I was mad at God. I was yelling at God. I'm like, what are you doing to me? How am I ever going to make it without him? And I realized I was making him too important when, when I sat back, I realized God brought me who I needed. I needed Vinny at the beginning. I needed Dave in the middle who helped me transition over to speaking. And then I needed Mark after that. So God perfectly orchestrated the mentors in and out of my life. When the, when the student is ready, the master will appear. Mm -hmm. But you need more than one. <laughs> you do, you do. I think Shia LaBeouf, I've been watching, I watched a documentary on him recently, Darren. He's turned his life around. And uh, I've got a, lot, a newfound appreciation for Shia LaBeouf. I think he might make a really great, uh, I think he might make a really good young Darren LaCroix, just while it's <laughs> in my mind. Uh, my my third question was, what is your favorite challenge of all the challenges that you've done with these video challenges? Hmm. My personal favorite challenge or because I, I would immediately default to watching other people do the challenge and stretching themselves. When I see the emerging presenters who are doing videos every day, like that lights me up. When I see, I know they're struggling. I know they're going to hit a wall, but will they break through? For me personally, it's just, it's that consistency. It's, that's the biggest thing. It's like I can, the days that I don't want to, breaking through that and doing it anyway. One of my videos, it was literally, I had done four presentations the day before, virtually to all different cities around the world. And I was just exhausted. So the next day I was like in recovery mode, but I'm like, I committed to doing the 77 day you know, videos a day. And these are just one to two minute lives, whether it's Instagram live, Facebook live, whatever your format is, because it's in the stretching. And I just, I had bags under my eyes, I had circles. And I was like, I just don't want to do this. So guess what the lesson was? I don't want to do this. So it was incredibly authentic. I looked horrible. Uh, and that was exactly my point. So it's finding, I guess my favorite part is the creativity of finding that thing from my life that can relate and help someone else in theirs. When I get that, I'm like, yes, that's what brings me to life. Well, if it's any consolation, one of the videos that you posted the other day, you shared something that's that stuck with me and has helped me. So 
there you go. It's it's worth it. It's worth it already. Darren, I'm, I'm very conscious that you are an incredibly busy man, but do you have any concluding thoughts before we wrap this up? Yeah. I mean, I think I picked it up from Brian Tracy, but it's what is that habit that will move you forward? Are you committed to it? And will someone keep you accountable? Who in your life that trusts you and loves you, are you willing to say, all right, here's the habit. And for me early on, it was stage time, stage time, stage time. My mentor said, any day that you don't get on stage is the day that you don't grow. And I was like, I I thought I have to be good. What if the bookers see me fail? They said, no, no, no. You have to go up to get good. I remember it was about a year and a half into my comedy career. I was maybe getting three or four laughs at best. They were little laughs, but three or four is better than two. So I felt the progress. I'm sitting in the back of the room with Vinny. And this comedian goes up for his very first night. And he kills it. The audience is dying laughing. And it's his first night. And I'm sitting in the back with next to Vinny. And I'm like, ah. And I'm disgusted with myself. And I turned to him. I said, how do you know who's going to make it? And he said, that's simple, Darren. Whoever keeps going. Whoever keeps going. And that was big for me. And sometimes we compare our journey to somebody else's. And that's not fair. That kid's journey is different from my journey. So it was a lesson learned because then Vinny saw how hard I was working. And he said, but I'll tell you this. I'm going to offer you five minutes of stage time wherever I play. That was huge. You don't understand. I was doing open mic nights in a bowling alley in the back of Chinese restaurants. He was offering me five minutes at a real show. I was out of my mind excited. But then he got in my face and he said, but if you ever, ever turn down stage time, I will never help you again. Ouch. But what did he do for me? Those Now those days that I feared going up on stage and I didn't want to, I then became more fearful he was going to find out. And so that changed everything. In fact, my license plate here in Nevada is stage time because I never want to forget the habit that got me there. So identify the top three habits that are going to get you where you want to go. Find somebody to keep you accountable in love and then shut up and do them. We can find you stage time university, darrenlacroix.com. Where are your favorite social media haunts? Any, any of the above. Uh, I'm still, as you know, still learning LinkedIn. I'm moving over to there to find a different audience, but um, you can find me on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter much, although a few tweets go out, but Uh, YouTube is probably my number one format. I have 1,200 videos on there. I've been doing it for years. So anything new I come up with, I put it on YouTube. So I'm pretty easy to find. Ladies and gentlemen, Darren LaCroix. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training where I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. 
You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.